Genesis chapter 17, as you know, we are teaching our way through the book of Genesis right now. The reason we chose the book of Genesis is we felt like we needed to spend some time in the Old Testament. We want to make sure that our church family understands that the message of the Bible is very consistent. And so we opened up the first several years of our church by going through John's Gospel, and then we went through the book of Romans. And so we felt like as elders it was time for us to spend some concentrated time in the Old Testament. But where better to begin than Genesis, because that's where everything starts, of course. And all the things that we considered in regard to the Old Testament would really demand that we teach Genesis well. So that's why we started in Genesis. And so we're seeing the roots of, of what God has revealed to his people all the way back in the very beginning. And if you think about it, and you've been here for a while, we've been saying over and over that, that this same message, which applied to the original audience is incredibly relevant for us today. So there's two major things I want us to continue to see as we're studying the book of Romans, or the book of Genesis, rather. First of all, there's a, there's a massive story that begins here, and that same story follows throughout the rest of Scripture. There, there's one big story in all the Bible, and it starts here. And that story is there is one God, and he is a holy God, and he demands that his people worship him in holiness. But knowing full well that they would not, he made a plan whereby he would bring those unholy people back to himself. So Genesis shows us how a holy God made a good and perfect world, but how it fell into rebellion. But he didn't leave it that way. He pursued it in love. And we've been seeing it over and over again, that there is a great and gracious God But there is a sinful people that has a propensity to follow their own way. But he comes after them, captivating their hearts, and he brings them back to himself. Now, of course, that's the story of the rest of Scripture. Of course, it culminates in Christ, and one day that same Christ will come back and he will establish a reign, a rule of grace under which we will enjoy him forever. So the story of Abraham is sort of a microcosm of that. In some ways, it's the beginning of that, but it, it's a story that we can identify with because we find this man that God rescues out of rebellion, brings back to himself, and, and continues to change. Abraham sometimes demonstrates to us moments of great faithfulness. At other times, Abraham demonstrates to us great moments of unfaithfulness. We saw that last week in chapter 16. God had promised Abraham way back when he called him to himself that he would give him lots of offspring. But he delayed. God delayed keeping his promises for a long, long time. Abraham and his wife Sarah grew very impatient. Sarah had this slave girl, and she gave the slave girl to Abraham and said, Abraham, take my slave girl Hagar to be your other wife, and then you guys can have kids, and then I'll basically sort of adopt that kid because she's my slave after all, and then that kid will be mine, and then God will fulfill his covenant promises to us. If you remember from last week, or perhaps you weren't here, but you know the story, as soon as Hagar conceived, she became very sort of superior to Sarah. And then Sarah hated Hagar. But she wasn't necessarily immediately mad with with Abraham. She was really, I'm sorry, with Hagar. She was way more frustrated with Abraham. That demonstrates to us very much that we are like that as well. God makes these promises to us, but sometimes through delay or testing, we don't get the promises as soon as we want them. And then we begin to manipulate life. 
And even though the the big story behind the story is that God is going to accomplish his purposes, even when it doesn't look like he will, even when there's delays, in other words, God's still working. We still find ourselves in the story, in the microcosm, because we ourselves fear. We ourselves doubt. We ourselves like to take control of the proverbial wheel and wield control over our lives. And typically, we just make a big, huge mess of it. But even still, God is faithful. And that's where we find ourselves now in Genesis chapter 17. And of course, again, that demonstrates to us very much what our lives are like. You have this God who is always faithful. But you have we, his people, who are often not. But God continues to show up in his covenant mercies and and bring us back to himself and make new promises to us. And that's what Genesis chapter 17 teaches us. So let's read together, as we typically do, the entire chapter. I've said to you that I want to make sure that by the time we end the book of Genesis that we have read every verse. So we're going to do that again today. We're going to read the whole chapter. I ask you now, as we read together, to ask the Holy Spirit to impress these words supernaturally into your heart. These are the words of the Lord. When Abram was 99 years old, now just... Let me pause for a minute. This is 24 years after God has called him out of paganism, okay? And it's also 13 years from what we studied in chapter 16. So if you think uh, Abraham and Sarah were really doubting God before, there's even more of a delay now. So just think of the timeline here. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. It's El Shaddai. That's the old Amy Grant song, okay? Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, or father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of nations. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, with he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? 
And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house are bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. As God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he had circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. May God bless the reading of his word. This chapter seems a little odd, right? We talk a lot about God and grace, Jesus and mercy. But here's a whole chapter in the Bible that talks about circumcision. And, I mean, this is kind of a graphic thing. If you have a son or sons and you have had them in the past, you know, like 100 years or so and you're born in America, it's likely that your doctor prescribed circumcision. And if you've ever watched your child be circumcised, I have. It's kind of a difficult thing to watch. But, you know, they, they give them, like, you know, something that numbs the pain. And, and it's done when they're really little. And, you know, by the time they're a few days old, there's very little remembrance that it ever happened. Just kind of normal and commonplace for us. In, in Abraham's day, this was not very commonplace, at least for all. There were some of their neighbors in Egypt and other places where this was relatively commonplace. Most nations like that did it for issues of like purification, to appease their gods. Some of them perhaps even did it for issues of like cleanliness. But, but God shows up here and he's, he's doing something new with this ritual. And there's a whole chapter in our Bible which talks about it. In just a few moments, I want to help us understand exactly why that is. But before we do that, I want us to focus in on the first part of the chapter and then sort of the middle part of the chapter. In the first part of the chapter and the middle part of the chapter, what God is doing there is reconfirming promises. I think that's really significant. It's significant because of what we saw last week in chapter 16. Here you have a God who's made all these promises to Israel, and yet she keeps falling away. And of course, Israel doesn't exist yet. She's all just Abraham. And if you think about it, that's pretty important because Moses, when he wrote this, wrote it to Israel. What was Israel like? Israel was a people that was, by and large, unfaithful to God as you study their history. So when Moses recorded these stories and put them down and then told them to his people, he's basically saying to them, our father Abraham, he was a lot like us. You know, God gave him all these promises just like he has to us. God rescued Abraham out of paganism. God made abundant promises to Abraham in giving him a land and an offspring, just like he has for us. He brought us out of Egypt. He's defeated all of our enemies. He's fed us with bread from heaven and water from rocks. And he's taking us to a new place. But we have this tendency to to wander away from him. And, of course, we find ourselves here as well. We're, We're like Abraham and Sarah. We're like Israel. 
We're the kind of people that understand the promises of God. They're all around us. Most of us who have been Christians for a while have, have experienced the faithful promises of God. And yet often we wander away from those promises because we want to go our own way. We have this propensity to try to make life work on our own. And Genesis chapter 16 is a very clear articulation of that. Sarah and Abraham doubt God, try to take over, and they completely mucked the whole thing up. And so then you look at Genesis chapter 16 and you say, well, is God going to get frustrated to the point that he just casts them off? But as we've seen so far throughout this book, God doesn't do that. God keeps coming and he keeps keeping his promises. And aren't our lives a demonstration of that? God makes promises to us, but he keeps keeping them even when we're not faithful. Now, His faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness is not to make us sloppy worshipers. In other words, just because he's faithful, it doesn't give us license, freedom, flexibility to do whatever we want. As we saw last week in Genesis chapter 16, God punished them in a sense. He brought strife into the home. Because Abraham abdicated his responsibility to call his wife to holy living and gave in to her evil demands, everything got really screwed up. We saw last week how unfaithful fear leads to a mess. And then God used the unfaithful mess to call Sarah and Abraham back to the realization that they needed to do things his way and not their own. You see, when it really comes down to it, God doesn't have to punish us with lightning bolts and floods. All God has to do is just sort of take his restraint off of us and let us go our own way. And what's our experience? What has your experience been like when you've tried to make life work your own way? How has that gone for you? It's usually just a major mess. And in some ways, that's why you're sitting in these difficult metal chairs today. Because even though it's uncomfortable to sit there and listen to this, you know you need him because you've tried the other stuff. But isn't it amazing how we still kind of go back to that from time to time? Well, Genesis 17 is sort of the opposite. God calls us back to himself through some measure of punishment, letting us go our own way, letting us experience the fruit of our own messes. But Genesis chapter 17 is the other way that God calls us to himself. He calls us to himself by reconfirming promises. So in both ways, God calls us to himself. He calls us to depend upon him when we make a mess of things and we see that we desperately need him. On the other hand, sometimes God just looks at us and gives us more promises and he overwhelms us with his love. The first thing I want us to see today in this chapter is that our mighty God is abundantly gracious. You see, self Self-identification here, that's what God's doing in verse 1. He's saying, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. I am the one who is powerful enough to do whatever I want. Now, as you've already read the chapter, what's the powerful thing that God will do? We know that God made the world with just the spoken word. He did everything that we see around us. He created everything that we see around us just by speaking it into existence. So we know that God can do whatever he wants. But, but specifically here in this chapter, 
How is God's power going to show up? Well, specifically, he's going to take a barren womb and he's going to impregnate that womb with a child. He's going to take a 90-year-old woman and a 99-year-old guy and he's going to give them a child. Now, we know that people lived longer back then. But in some ways, I guess we have to expect that these people were not that much different than our 90 and 99-year-old people now. So you don't see this happening. If it did, it would be like on the news, right? Like this is a big deal. So how is El Shaddai going to prove his power? He's going to take a woman who should not be able to conceive and allow her to conceive. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, we find Paul articulating how this power works out and what it did for the faith of his people. If you're following along today in one of the Bibles from the back, it's page 941. Specifically, let's start in verse 13. Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations." In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he being told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul is arguing in Romans chapters 3 and 4 that the only way that we can be forgiven our sins, the only way that we can pass from death to life, the only way that the guilty verdict that is over all of sinners can be removed and we can get a new verdict, not guilty, the only way that's possible is by faith. And he argues in Romans chapter 4 that it's always been that way. In other words, the only way that the guilty can be declared not guilty is by faith. It's always been that way. And Abraham is the case study for that. And he's the father of us all, Jew and Gentile alike. What was it specifically that Abraham believed? Abraham believed that the mighty God could do whatever he wanted to do. What God wanted to do as he revealed through his promises was to give Abraham and Sarah a son, a son that was theirs biologically. And he allowed them to get to the ages of 90 and 99. I don't think this was any kind of mistake. Like we said last week, it's not as though God has this massive stack of file forwarders on his heavenly desk and he forgets this somewhere in the stack. 
It wasn't like he pulled out their file years down the road and said, oh man, I made these promises to them. I, I need to get on the ball here. It's not what God does. That's not what he's like. God shows up. And he promises that by his mighty power, in fact, he self-identifies as the mighty one, that he will bring his promises to pass. And Abraham believed that. And God declared him not to be guilty, as we saw back in chapter 15, because he believed in the promises of God. He trusted in God's grace. It's the same thing for us today. How is a person passed from death to life, from guilty to not guilty? We believe in the mighty God who always keeps his gracious promises. And as we see in Romans chapter 4, God does that specifically by giving us Christ. Christ is the incarnation of all of God's mighty and gracious promises. What did Abraham desperately need? He needed to pass from death to life. He needed to go from guilty to not guilty. The only way for that to happen was for him to trust and the mighty, gracious God. And it's the same for us today. So God always keeps his mighty and gracious promises. In fact, here, to seal the deal in a sense, he gives this guy a new name. He goes from just being a father to the father of many nations. Sarah goes from being a princess to sort of a mighty princess, one who will come out of out of barrenness to being a woman out of whom kings and nations will come. So Sarai and Sarah basically mean the same thing. That means princess, but it kind of takes on new meaning here. And she gets a new name as well to, to signify that God's about to show up and finally keep his promises. So our mighty God is abundantly gracious, and he always proves that by the things that he does. So we read the Bible. It's important for us to do so. We, we hear the Bible preached. We study it in our small groups. Why do we do that? Is it just this thing we do because that's what Christians are supposed to do? We're supposed to know a lot about the Scriptures? I think ultimately, if you do not see the Scriptures as absolutely essential for your sojourn, for your journey. In other words, if, if you do not become dependent upon rehearsing the promises of God, you will never see the importance of the Scriptures. But once that becomes clear to you, once it becomes clear to you that you've tried everything else, you've tried to go your own way, you've tried to depend upon the strength of your hands, you've tried to manipulate life in such a way that you can make it work, and you've seen that all that leads to is just disaster. But you give God a chance, and you read his word And you see his character as the mighty, gracious one. And you see the way that he's kept his promises to his people. That leads you to listen to preaching. That leads you to read your own Bibles. That leads you to be the kind of people that gather together and talk about the scriptures. Because you desperately see your need for this God to take care of you. You see, when it really comes down to it, we have such a propensity, such a drive to live independently. Ever since Adam and Eve, we've been that way. It's like this disease within us, and it keeps rearing its ugly head. You know what it's like to go to the fair and play whack-a-mole? You guys ever do this? You know what whack-a-mole is? It's that game where you've got, like, that club. There's, like, six or seven holes, I don't know. And, like, the prairie dog sticks its head up, right? And then you try to whack it, and if you hit it before it you know, puts its head back down, you get a point. And if you get enough points, you get a bunch of tickets, and you can buy, like, a plastic spider ring. I don't know. Um, 
that's what our independence is like. It's like whack-a-mole. It's so difficult to hit, but it just keeps coming back up and back up and back up. Really, the only way to fight that propensity, that drive toward independence, is to come to God's word, see who you are, and see that there is a better way. You see, ultimately, if you read the Bible, if you hear the Bible taught, and you do not come to it prayerfully as an act of humble worship, you'll never get the point. You see, ultimately, it's possible to come to the Scriptures in an attempt to master them and to master God. We all do this. We come to the Bible very often. We come to preaching times and we hear things and we don't like them. We don't like how we see ourselves in the mirror of God's Word. We don't like how we see our sin. We don't like the way that God calls us to Himself. And so we sort of refashion it and reshape it to fit the way we want it to be. But I think, I hope, most of us are learning that that is stupid. And here's why it's stupid. Because it never works out. Why does God do that? Because God in his mercy, if you think about it, is helping us to see that going our own way is disaster and it will lead to death. So God puts roadblocks in the way. And he rids us of stupidity over time so that we see that we desperately need him. So what God does after Abraham and Sarah's stupidity in Genesis chapter 16, because that's what it is, is he comes back to them and says, I'm going to keep my promises to you. But there was another interval in between Genesis 16 and 17. He tested them again. He wanted to see if they would hang on to, to faith. And finally, he shows up because he knew how long that they could wait. And he says, I'm going to bring to you the promises. I'm going to bring it to pass. If you compare this chapter all the way back to chapter 12, God has been making promises to Abraham. And it's sort of three-headed. There's three parts to the promise. Number one, I'm going to make a nation out of you. Number two, I'm going to give you a place to live. I'm going to give you land. And number three, through you in that land, I'm going to bless the whole world. But those promises get amplified here. He's saying to Abraham, it's not just going to be a little nation. It's going to be tons of people. And then other people will come from those people. And out of those people, I'm going to bless the entire globe. So what's God's doing here? Well, he's making more promises. He's amplifying the promises. One of my wife's favorite movies is Annie. Annie kind of drives me nuts. Um, she has the Blu-ray now, and so she watches it occasionally, and she has now suckered my boys into watching it with her. And, you know, it's like one of those movies that if you're, my office is at home, and so occasionally if, like, I'm in the office doing something, and she's got the movie going, which happens from time to time, you know, you can hear the songs, and then the songs, like, stick with you forever, and they drive you nuts, and you're singing Hard Knock Life for, like, three days. Um, well, there's actually a new Annie coming out. My wife can't wait. I think it's coming out at Christmas. Um, we're actually adopting right now. Most of you know that. And so my wife, my wife loves the story of Annie because it's kind of cute and she likes the songs. But also there's beauty in it because you have this little girl who doesn't have a family and this rich guy brings her into his life. And, and it was sort of just like a PR stunt at first, but then she captures his heart and it's beautiful and warm and all that kind of stuff. 
My wife is really looking forward to the new one because the new Annie is a little black girl, and we're adopting a little black girl. So this is like the perfect movie for my wife. I think she consulted on it. So anyway, my, my wife loves this story. But one of the really interesting things about Annie, even if you hate the story, is, is what God's doing in our lives is he's showing to us that, that he just showers us with blessing after blessing after blessing. Annie's like that. Annie's this little girl who lives in this horrible orphanage, and it's with this horrible lady with all these other little poor kids. And all they do basically all their life is just work really, really hard. In fact, they make up music about it because that's the only way that they can deal with their pain. right? And, and so it's just really tough. But, you know, she gets brought now to live in this rich guy's home. He's hanging out with the president and stuff. He's got like a chopper and he's got servants. And she goes from being like a little servant girl to being like a little princess. She goes from wearing rags to wearing like cute little dresses. And, and it's like this huge transformation. She goes from nothing to abundance. And this guy loves her eventually, of course, and just showers her with everything that she could possibly want. She went from, from this to this, and it was incomprehensible. She never could have dreamed of this. That's what Abraham and Sarah's story was like. They went from, from nothing, from futility, to this. They, they went from going their own way, which was going to lead to disaster and death, to, to being the children of God who had everything they needed and way, way more. And what God has been doing throughout all these chapters is he just keeps upping the ante. More and more and more promises. One of the things that happens as we read the Bible is that we see ourselves in it. And then it helps us to identify what God has done in our own stories. It, it gives us sort of glasses to see. You know what it's like if you've ever been to a 3D movie and you're watching the movie and you don't have your 3D glasses, it just kind of looks a little bit blurry. That's kind of what our lives are like. They're just a little bit blurry and fuzzy. But the Bible gives us lenses whereby we can interpret our own story. And if you're a child of God, isn't that what you see? You see, you can look at the Bible and you can see God's promises to other people. But don't you see God's promises to you now? I want you to get good at that. Look back at what he's done. The way he rescued you from your own sin. The way he brought you a godly spouse. The way he's helping you to raise godly children. The way that he's kept you out of poverty by giving you jobs. The way he's preserved your life through sickness. The way he's forgiven you whenever you have sinned and rebelled against him. The way he's given you godly friends. And on and on and on we go. You see, what the Bible is, is basically this repository of God keeping his promises to his people. And in so reading, we look at it and we learn to look at our own lives and we say, he's done that for me. It wasn't just for Abraham, he's done it for me. Our mighty God is abundantly gracious. What did Abraham and Sarah need in God's providence? Well, if you think about it, he made them a promise that he would build a nation through them and through that nation would bless all the nations. Well, what had to happen fundamentally? Well, you can't have millions of offspring if you don't have one. So how did El Shaddai need to show up to bring the promises to pass? This woman had to conceive. I don't necessarily know what you need most fundamentally for your faith. But I know that the way that God will show up for you will be exactly what you need. And I guess I can say this. 
the way that God has abundantly and mightily shown up for you is he has given you the provision of Christ. That's a little bit of ironic if you think. What did Abraham and Sarah need? They needed an offspring. But if you think about it, that's what we saw back in Genesis chapter 3 after the first sin, right? God promised that an offspring would come which would crush sin and death and bring hope and restored life to God's people. And hasn't God done that? Really, if you think about it, the Bible is all about offspring. And God gave us Christ to rescue us from our sins. So the mighty and gracious God of heaven sent his Son to live for us and to die for us. And he raised him in power from the death because death could not hold him. Ultimately, how has El Shaddai shown up for you? Well, he kept his promise to bring an offspring. And this mighty and gracious God will rescue you if you will place your faith in that offspring. So our mighty God is abundantly gracious, and he will always keep his promises. The second thing I want us to see today is that we are to worship him in humble devotion. So our mighty God is abundantly gracious. Yes, we've seen that really throughout the book so far. But we are to worship him in humble devotion. Not only have we seen that God has been gracious throughout the chapters of Genesis up to this point, we've also seen that by and large when people are left to themselves, they go their own way. It happened, of course, right away in the garden. Adam and Eve's first offspring were like that. By the time you get to chapter 6, the whole world is so evil that God destroys it and refashions it. It isn't long after the flood where God refashions the world that humanity is clearly rebelling once again. Left to himself, mankind will run away from God. But God did not create the world to be like that. God created the world to be those who would worship him. People would worship him. That's why he made the world, to glorify himself, to show how great he was, and to create worshipers who would follow him. There is no hope for that if he leaves us to ourselves, because we will go our own way. But once he brings us back to himself, we are to worship him in humble devotion. So he's calling Abraham and Sarah to do just that. As I've already said to you today, it's one thing to recognize the grace of God. It's another thing to appreciate it and to appropriate it. In other words, it's one thing to say, our God is gracious and therefore he'll always forgive me. It's a much different thing to look at the grace of God and say, I will not trample on that. Yes, my God is gracious, but he's gracious so that I can worship him. He's not gracious so that I can take advantage of him. What was the original design for Adam and Eve? The original design for the first couple is that they would enjoy God and obey Him. And this was the path of joy for them. But they abandoned that because they wanted to go their own way, and the whole world was plunged into disaster after that. But as God brings us back to Himself, He wants us to worship Him, which of course glorifies Him, but it's also the path of joy for us. And once again, here and we find ourselves, because we've seen the other way. And most of us, on a weekly basis, still pursue that other way from time to time. And it never satisfies. So yes, God will always keep his promises. 
He tells Abraham here, I'm going to do these amazing things. But he furthermore says, I want you to be blameless. I want you to walk before me in perfection. Now, let's be clear here. He's not saying to Abraham when he calls him to blameless worship that he expects Abraham never to mess up. Clearly, Abraham will mess up. When he says to him, walk before me and be blameless in verse 1, he doesn't anticipate that Abraham will never sin again. But he's calling them to this very high standard. And basically what he's saying there is, you owe me everything. But I want you to understand today, just like Abraham had to learn, that 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 is the better way. Not only because it brings glory to God, because it will bring you joy. I promise you that. And most of us who've been Christians a while can testify to that. But God doesn't just call him to this. He gives him a symbol, a sign, which will always remind him of what that life is to look like. Now, I'm going to do something which will brush up against something academic for just a few moments, but I want to teach you as we go through the Scriptures together for just a moment that this idea, this this symbol of circumcision is really an important one in the Bible, but it teaches us an important spiritual reality. So circumcision for, for some of Abraham's neighbors had all kinds of reasons religiously and sort of socially. I've already said that to you today. For Israel, though, for Abraham's offspring, it was going to take on new significance. And the significance was this. I want you to walk before me in blamelessness. I'm the one who's made you promises you owe me your life. But I'm going to give you a symbol. I'm going to remove the foreskin from your flesh, of your penis, to help you understand that I want the foreskin of your heart removed. That's the idea. I'm going to give you a physical symbol to teach you about something inward. In fact, growing up, that's what we were told about circumcision. It was almost a cliche in our theological classes. The the sign of circumcision was an outward sign of an inward reality. It just became cliche. So I want to teach you something more than a cliche today. It was a symbol outwardly to help Abraham understand something about his heart. There was something about humanity that made us hard after the fall. Whereas before, Adam and Eve had tender hearts toward God. As soon as they sinned, their hearts were walled off. You see that immediately in the garden. After they sin, they go and hide from God. They go and start manipulating life their own way. Ever since, we've been the same. So now God shows up to Abraham and he says to him, I want you to have this symbol to help you understand that you have a propensity to have a hard heart. But if you're going to worship me in faithfulness, it can't be that way. Israel kept this covenant over time. They, they did what God told them to do. But eventually it just became an outward symbol. In Jeremiah chapter 6, God says to the prophet, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. So God's now speaking metaphorically, and it shows us that the point of circumcision was never just the act of it. You see, the people to whom Jeremiah is speaking are physically circumcised, but their ears weren't. In other words, their their hearts weren't. Something similar in Jeremiah 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So again, the symbol that God was giving to Abraham here was to teach him about spiritual realities. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. 
Again, if you're following along in your Bibles today, <clears throat> this will be on page 724. In Ezekiel 36, this is one of the times in the Old Testament when God promises what we call the New Covenant. God had made an old covenant with his people through Moses. He gave them all kinds of laws. The laws could not save them. It just merely showed them their need to be saved. They could not keep all those laws through their own power and self-will. So God promised that he would bring a new covenant. And he wouldn't just give them laws on tablets of stone. He would do something actually in their very hearts. Starting in verse 22, the prophet says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. In other words, all you circumcised people, you have not honored me. But I'm going to do something so that I will get honor. Look with me in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. These were circumcised people, at least physically. But their lives were marked by unfaithful rebellion. And God says to them, even though you have my laws on tablets of stone, you need heart transformation. How would God accomplish that? Well, let's look together in Colossians chapter 2. Again, what I'm trying to prove to you is that this motif is really important in the Scriptures. It shows up time and time again because it teaches us what we're all really like. We can identify with the people of Israel because we're like them. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says to the church, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Look with me in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It's not talking about Christ's physical circumcision. It's talking about the spiritual work that Christ did by dying for us. Having been buried with him, verse 12, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's interesting, if you think about it, that God tells Abraham to be circumcised and to circumcise his children and all the people in his household. But the only way that Abraham's circumcision would even matter is that if one would come and actually accomplish spiritual circumcision. I've already said to you that physical circumcision didn't matter at all. The way that we are saved today, the way that we are justified, passing from being guilty to not guilty, is by trusting in Jesus Christ, the one who became our substitute, the one who died in our place. Theologically speaking, 
when we trust Christ, not just believe certain things about him, but stake our claim on him, we give him our sin and he gives us his righteousness. He already paid for those sins on the cross. And if we trust him, that penalty that we owe God will be taken away. And we get something much, much better, which is the righteousness of Jesus. You see, not only do we now, who look back on the cross, desperately need that, but all those who came before the cross desperately needed that. In Romans chapter 3, Paul teaches us that God passed over the sins of all of his people before Jesus. But penalty still had to be paid. So look what's going on in Genesis 17. Abraham needed to be circumcised so that he would find forgiveness and a humble heart before God. But his justification that we read about in Genesis 15 would only come to pass if one would eventually come and pay the penalty for Abraham's sins. So was Abraham justified? Abraham was justified by looking forward to one of his great, 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 great grandchildren who would accomplish spiritual circumcision on his behalf. How are we justified? By looking back on the one who accomplished for us spiritual circumcision, removing our hard hearts, replacing them with hearts of flesh, taking away our sin and the penalty that we owe God and instead giving us hearts of flesh, hearts that want to and are able to obey and giving us forgiveness and the ability to follow after God. We are justified just like Abraham was by believing and trusting in Jesus. So Abraham's physical circumcision would only really take effect because spiritual circumcision was coming for him through one of his great, 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 great grandchildren. And it's the same for us today as we look back. You see, it's not about the physical act. And I think this speaks to us today that it's not just about performing religious actions. You can attend religious worship services every week of your life. You can read your Bible. You can give your money away philanthropically to the poor. But if this is all just outward acts and it's not looking to Jesus as your only hope, you have no hope at all. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, For we are the circumcision, even people who are not physically circumcised, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It's not your outward religious acts that count. It's looking to Jesus and Jesus alone. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And who does that? Those who have circumcised hearts. In Galatians 5, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So do religious acts matter? Yes, but only insofar as they are being drawn from the power that Christ supplies and being done out of love. So really what we're saying here, it's not just the acts themselves, it's the motive for the acts and the source of the power for the acts. In other words, yes, God cares how you walk. That's why he called Abraham to a blameless walk. But how will that be accomplished? 
How can you walk in such a way to please God? It'll only come through Jesus. He's the only one who can take away your hard heart, replace it with a heart of soft flesh. He's the only one that can enable you to sustain a walk of blamelessness for God's glory and again for your joy. If you take two people and stack them up against one another, it's hard in a given moment to know why they're doing what they're doing. You might have one person who does not have a circumcised heart. In other words, they have not been justified. They do not belong to God. They're still a rebellious sinner going their own way. Stacked next to that person, you might have a person who does have a circumcised heart. You might not be able to tell in the moment, in fact, often you cannot, why those individual people are doing the things that they're doing. They might be doing the exact same thing, but what you will find over time is that the trajectory of those two people will look very different. The person who does the religious acts will not be able to sustain them. And they will not be doing them for the right reasons. And if you have eyes to see, you will find over time that those people will fall away. A person, however, who has a circumcised heart, by and large, over time, though there will definitely be moments of falling, will by and large have a trajectory toward godliness, toward blamelessness. And they will be doing it out of hearts of love The fruit of what they will do will look different. It will not draw attention to them. It will draw attention to the one who has made them new, the one who enables the actions. So I say to you today that Genesis, and especially here in Genesis 17, teaches us that our mighty God is abundantly gracious. But it also calls those who have tasted that abundant grace to worship him, the one who has given the grace, in humble devotion. I think that's really the message of circumcision. So yeah, it's odd that we have a chapter in our Bibles that's so much about circumcision. But there's an inward reality we need to understand. Abraham needed to know. Here you have a couple, Abraham and Sarah, that had a propensity to try to go their own way. And God knew that. So what did he do? He gave them a physical symbol to remind them every day that they needed to worship him. But the only way that that was going to come to pass is if they were humbly devoted to him. In other words, you cannot accomplish this on your own. God prescribed the symbol as a way of us looking to him, of a way of us teaching us to trust him. Here's what this looks like in real life. Let me give you some contrasts for just a moment. Let's talk about doing evangelism or sharing the gospel, the good news with those who do not belong to God. As you look to a person that you would like to share the good news with that you think perhaps is not a Christian, you look at them and you say to them, okay, you're doing these religious acts. But if you spend enough time with them, you can help them discern over time that that many of those acts are coming out of a hard heart, which helps them understand why they are not able to sustain them. It also helps them understand that why when they do them, they are merely trying to buy God off. And and if you're with a person long enough, you can help them discern that. And so what you're calling a person to is not mere religious performance. You see, as Christians, that's not what we're calling non-Christians too. Whenever we share the good news with people that they can become Christians too, we're not just calling them to become moral. 
We're calling them to look to the one who has already given them the opportunity for life, the one who alone can make them moral. So you see, the message of Christianity is not to be moral. The message of Christianity is to trust Jesus. I think we see this in our own growth and holiness. When we try to go our own way and, and try to make it on our own, that never goes very well. Conversely, to contrast this, we need to be the kind of people who are constantly depending upon God. We saw this back in Ezekiel chapter 36. You see it in Colossians 2 and elsewhere. That for those who have been circumcised in heart, the only way to sustain obedience is to trust God. Isn't it interesting that the one who gave us the Son calls us to trust Him that we might be forgiven? The one who calls us to holy living will sustain us if we have faith in Him. So we come to Him in faith and we remain in Him by faith. You cannot muster up strength for holy living by just being strong. No. The one who has made you whole by giving you his grace is the one who calls you now to trust in that same grace that you might walk in faithfulness. So we are rescued by Jesus through the gospel, and we are sustained by Jesus in the gospel. The gospel is a message that Jesus has given us everything we need. So we don't just trust ourselves, we trust him. Here's what this might look like practically. Every day, God expects you to walk before him blamelessly. But he knows, and you know, that you will not be blameless. So in those moments when you find yourself not to be blameless, what do you do? You go to him and you say, My Father, I have trusted in you. I have placed my confidence in Jesus, your Son, and you have forgiven me. Today I have failed to walk blamelessly before you. Please forgive me. And remind me that you have circumcised my heart. In fact, God, that's why I'm coming to you, because I hate disobeying you. Help me today. Help me to be different. I know, in fact, in just a few minutes, I'm going to face temptation again. Temptation to be prideful. Temptation to be lustful. Temptation to be egotistical. Temptation to go my own way and to be independent and autonomous. And I don't want to do that because I've seen where that leads me. It doesn't glorify you, and it leads me to misery. So when I face the temptation in those moments, show up and please help me. And when the temptation comes, you must resist, but you resist in the power of the one who made you whole in the first place. You see, as those with sanctified, set-apart, circumcised hearts We still depend upon the one who has called us to himself. We owe that to him. We owe him worship. But that worship can only come from a heart that he alone can change. What about in parenting? It's difficult to raise kids, which is like the understatement of the century, right? As Christian parents, what are we calling our kids to? We're not just calling them to mere obedience. It doesn't work very well. That, that doesn't last. You don't take your little two-year-old and, and expect them to always do the right thing and become enraged with them when they don't. Because they can't. If you have a child who has not yet placed their faith in Jesus, you should not be surprised that they cannot sustain obedience. It's impossible for them to do so because they still have hard hearts. 
They do not have circumcised hearts, in other words. Now, you still tell them to do the right thing. Don't misunderstand me here. You still expect your children to do the right thing. But as Christian parents, what you're doing then is you're helping them butt their heads up against the proverbial wall. You're helping them see their inadequacy. You're helping them see that the one who created them expects obedience out of them, but they can't do it, which leads them to frustration. That's first step. And eventually to cry out to the one who can make them new. And all along you're saying to them, you know what, mommy and daddy are the same way. Before we had circumcised hearts, we could not obey God either. In fact, often mommy and daddy act like we don't have circumcised hearts because we try to obey God in our own way. And we doubt him and we don't believe him. And we live in our anger and our pride and our lust and our doubt. And mommy and daddy are miserable when we do that. But you know what? You can trust Jesus and he will give you a new heart and then you can obey. And we as a family, even though we will fall, we will get back up because we believe fundamentally that following after God is the better way. And after all, he is due this kind of worship. So as people with circumcised hearts, if you are the kind of people who have put your faith in Jesus and he has given you a circumcised heart, then you are called to faithful, humble devotion. Now, I say it's humble. I call it humble devotion because you still need him. It's not just working harder and harder and harder. It's not the message of Christianity. It's trusting in the one who circumcised your heart in the first place. So for the rest of your life, if you are a Christian, you're going to be living in that reality, that tension that though you still want to go your own way, and often it seems to be so much better, there is a better way. You owe him your devotion, full-hearted devotion. You don't get to make up your own way to go after his way. But it will only be enabled by him who will make you new and who has made you new. And I will close with this. If you find yourself today the kind of person who just can't seem to do the Christian thing, You've been around it a lot. You see it. You kind of get it intellectually. But your life just isn't changing. You keep meeting God halfway. You believe fundamentally that God helps those who help themselves. By the way, it's not in the Bible. Okay. You know what you need today. You need to be like Abraham and Sarah. You need to to stake your claim that you've tried everything else, but the one who alone can circumcise a heart, which is Jesus, is your only hope. And I I ask you today, if if that's who you are, if you're a person who's who's been considering the claims of Jesus but trying to somehow come to him and, and modify your life and clean yourself up so he'll accept you, that that's going to be a fruitless exercise. It's a path that will lead to misery. So I say to you today, cast all of your confidence on Jesus. He's the only way that can take the mess of your life and begin to make it new. So when it comes down to it, who needs Jesus? The uncircumcised do. He's the only one that can take away your hard heart and replace it with a heart of flesh. But those of us who have been circumcised in the heart need it too, right? 
we need Jesus too. Abraham did. There was a high standard to which he was called, but the mighty, gracious God would bring about his promises, which would culminate in Jesus. And so we, like Abraham, look at Jesus as our only hope, and we trust him today. Let's pray together.